Welcome to the Molding Private Practice Show, where we help healthcare practitioners in private practice keep true to their purpose and build a life of mastery by providing the knowledge, skills, and tools to bring their dreams to life. In this episode of the show, we speak to Samantha Campbell about being an occupational therapist and everything private practice management related. Samantha Campbell, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board. Thanks so much for doing this. It's a pleasure. It's good to be here, Oliver. Thank you. I forgot to ask you, uh, I mean, you're so welcome, but I forgot to ask you on the other show, but how did you actually agree to be on the show? Did someone reach out to you? Yes. So Shaz sent me an email. Okay. Um, yeah. She sent me an email and then I thought this is an awesome opportunity. Would love to be on the show. Okay. Um, no. Yeah. Thanks so much for agreeing to that. I mean, like I was telling you in the other show, it's, it's, ama- it's actually amazing in the last few years how open therapists are to the idea of like online sessions and yeah it's from that perspective i mean it's been you know the whole COVID stuff you know that was a huge blessing um mm. you know, to be able to be connected with amazing people like yourself um yeah, yeah. so thanks for saying yeah. yes one one benefit of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um you know i asked you like the impact on your practice you know during COVID, and i remember um it was a midwife, uh, Rueda Muller was on, and she said, you know, the baby's born during that time because of the masks, they actually, they, they didn't see many people smiling. So when, you know, the mask were off and they could see, you know, people smiling, it was like such an amazing thing. And yeah. I thought, amazing, eh? how different the world is. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. It's definitely been um, such a nice change now since the masks have been allowed to be off. <laughs> Loving it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I must have noticed I've, I've kind of relaxed with it a little bit more. Mm. But in that first week or so, and definitely maybe even a month, you know, you still like, you know, you have this this mask at half, uh, at, at <laughs> arm's length away. You're like, should I put it on? Should I not? Uh, yeah, but um, I agree with you. It seems more so normal now, and yet mm. you know, it was so different a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. So I have to ask. Um, so you know, when when you were much more younger, uh, people always ask you, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? So did a young Samantha say she wanted to be an OT? <laughs> I think young Samantha had no idea what <laughs> occupational therapy was. Mm. She wanted to be a vet when okay. she was young, um, and then it changed to a. Um, I don't know what I, yeah, I can't even remember like what I thought when I was younger. I know I wanted to be a vet okay. at a stage. Then I wanted to be a marine biologist. Okay. Um, when I was like the beginning of high school, that was like a, a thing that interests me a lot. And then only when I was like later in high school, like in grade 11, when we had to start job shadowing and really asking questions and thinking of what we wanted to do and, you know, what, what did we want to become? And I thought, man, I just want to like be able to be in a profession that helps people, you know, very naive, like sort of thinking, like, how do I help people? How do I do that? Um, and I think one of my teachers said to me, you should look at occupational therapy, like as a as a profession. And I, and I hadn't heard anything like about that. I knew that my brother, um, who's 11 years younger than me, he went to an OT when he was grade one. Um, so I'd heard about it from him, but I didn't really know what it was about. And my mom said, you know, like, you just need to chat to people. You need to be exposed to it. She organized for um, some of her friends whose ch- daughters had become 
OT. She organized for me to meet with them and ask them questions, which I did, which was incredible. Um, and from there, like arranged um, like a job shadowing um, sort of sessions. And the one place where I job shadowed was at Interbeni, um, which is a rehab unit in Durban. And mm. I remember being there and, and seeing the OTs working with uh, patients with amputations, stroke patients, patients in wheelchairs schizophrenic patients so psych and I thought wow like this is there's such variety here and the role of the OT is to get the people back to where they were with their with their injury which is either now permanent or you know how do they adapt it so it was just so cool to see that in action and that's when I knew okay man I think this is what I want to do (laughs) that's actually really cool i mean like so you had some really insightful people around you to guide you which is amazing um yeah and the funniest story i heard was like you know when someone said i think they wanted to do i'm not going to say the profession because then you know it's it's going to be weird (laughs) but uh, you know they're going to the other you know like the other you know department and they go past the ot you know, department and the all the OTs are doing some cool stuff and making stuff and they're like, I want to do what they do. <laughs> you know, yeah. but, yeah, o- OTs seem to have a lot of fun, you know, with that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Hmm. And, and I think you touched on it now, but I think also the thing about being an occupational therapist is that the scope is so wide. As in, you know, if you didn't want to work with children, you can work with adults. You know, if you don't want to work with mental health, you can work with something else. You know, there's the assessments, there's all of those things. And, and I think that's the amazing thing. But I think you hit it, you know, perfectly when you said, and I think this is the commonality with most practitioners, is that they said they wanted to help, you know, they wanted to be in that helping profession. And I think once you do that, you know, it kind of like, you know, falls into play. But yeah, well done for actually realizing that, because that's amazing. Yeah, I think it's very lucky. I think lots of people, you know, you get to grade 11, you get to matric and you just have no idea like what what you want to do, what you want to become. And it, yeah, I'm really lucky that it was something that stood out for me from the beginning. And mm. um, I didn't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think I went into it thinking I knew what OT was, only found out like in third year, even mm. fourth year. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Okay. That's also what OT does. Like, yeah. It was a massive, massive learning experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think people and, and maybe even OTs are still trying to figure out, you know, because of the space that we're in. And we had an OT recently and she, she specializes in like substance abuse. And I would have not put again that, you know, that stuff together, you know, and it's amazing yeah. how there's these specializations, you know, that are happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the, the one thing is probably a term, you know, because people don't resonate with that idea of occupational therapist you know it just doesn't it's not as you know like when you want when you want to learn how to speak or have problems with speech then it's speech therapist you know like occupational therapist doesn't quite make sense I think from that perspective I'm just saying from a lay person you know yeah no kind of you know there's no link in a way do you find that as well when you try to explain what you do yes definitely I think that um as an OT and all of our, like our friends, our OT colleagues always talk about this. Like people have no idea, you know, what an OT does. Um, but I think like the term occupation um, is like, you know, something, well, commonly it's like your work, you know, mm-hmm. your occupation. But it's, I guess, if you look at it from our perspective, it's like what, what 
occupations do you perform in a day? Like what occupies your time hmm. and what occupations are you performing that are meaningful to you and that fill up your day? And how has your involvement in those occupations been taken away either by injury or illness, mental health, any sort of disability? How has that been taken away? And I guess the role of the OT is to understand that and then either through intervention or adaptation and get somebody back to participating in meaningful occupations. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, people... Don't, yeah, so yeah, I feel like you explain every time. <laughs> yeah, because I think even that what you just said now, you know, makes a lot of sense in an adult context, you know. But when yes. you have to explain to a parent why the child has to go for occupational therapy, you know, then it's like because occupation, you think job work, you know, like it's, um, yeah. you, know, you don't think function form kind of things, you know, which is what the OTs are amazing at. Yeah. Um, but so from the time you decided actually you're going to become an OT after the job shadowing, was it an easy path to get there? Yeah, it was. Um, for me, it, it seemed to just like fall into place. Like I think you, I, once I knew that I wanted to do that, you, you, I worked hard like at school to, to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it was it was a fairly easy process. I understood from the from the people that I had been chatting to, okay, where do you do, where do you study occupational therapy? Where are the places in South Africa that you can study occupational therapy? What does it involve? What are the benefits of the different universities? Um, so, and then I applied to, for me, I applied to Stellenbosch and to UCT. And then from there, it was, it was like quite an easy process. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a good testament to you have to point the the boat to where you want to go. And then once, once you do, then, you know, kind of, it opens up, but yeah, good stuff. Um, It's not as bad as like, I think the psychologists have it really bad, you know, like in terms of getting into the master's program. So lots of them, it seems to be a mixed bag, you know, from the episodes we've done to some that just kind of, it just works uh, to others that say, you know, it took them years before they could get into the program. Yeah, I think it is. It's a lot more difficult for them to become like a clinical psychologist mm. from from just studying psychology. It's yeah, I think it's really tough for mm. them. And and not to minimize this point, because although you're saying it was pretty seamless, I think even for anyone listening to this and you know wants to pursue, you know, the OT routes like yourself, Sam, is that there's a limited amount of space you know in each one of the universities. So it's not like you're mm. saying I want to do commerce or you want to do BSc. You know, it doesn't quite work like that because, you know, there's only a certain amount of spaces, right? And, you know, each yeah. university. Yeah, that's, that is true, Oliver. Like, I think also you, they look at, well, at least when I applied, I'm not sure, like, what the application process is now. But they, they do look at you quite holistically, which I thought was quite unique in terms of studying occupational therapy. They, they ask about what you do on the side. They ask about work or volunteering that you've done like they want quite a holistic picture of you because it is I mean it's yeah it's an interesting degree like it's very different to studying a BCom or doing a BA there are minimal places so they so your marks you need to work hard to get in but you need you also need to have like this holistic um sort of you need to be like a holistic person and mm-hmm. um, because they're also looking for that Mm. 
Can you just, I mean, just so that we keep it tangible, when you say that uh, holistic, do you mean like, you know, because I don't know, like our daughter is in high school now and she always says like, you know, they have to do the charity work and the volunteer work. Is it something similar to that? So like, yeah. like how you present and from an all rounded perspective. Yes, exactly that. Like, what are you involved in at school? Like, what what sort of extramurals are you doing? Are you getting involved in Interact? Are you serving the school in, in different ways? Are you involved in different sports? Like, are you in leadership positions? Um, that sort of thing. Okay. So it's not like you have this sort of, I'm just academic. Mm. Um, I have good marks and nothing else matters. Mm. It's a more like, okay, this is what I also think are important avenues. Um to complete at school and my time at school. Mm, yeah, and that's a good point. I think uh, I think it's very difficult when you look back because you probably didn't, you know, we, we didn't want to hear that advice when we were, you know, like going through the process, but, you know, like just be interesting and all-rounded, you know, because yeah. it's not just about academics. And I think because there's so much of competition maybe as well, yeah. that, you know, you do want to stand out in some way. And, you know, the more you have on that CV, you know, the better, Yes, especially with limited position places like OT. Yeah, and it helps. Like I found that we had um, at at the school that I went to, we had um, things that you could participate in, like going to the old age home, going to baby homes, doing that sort of things. And those experiences helped my OT journey like <laughs> tremendously. Mm. Um, so it, it definitely helps to be mm. involved in like a variety of things before you get to the the actual mm. studying journey. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense in my mind as well, because, you know, you, you're saying you want to be this helping person, but how do you prove it? And, you yeah. know, the experience that says, actually, I do go to the old age home like once a month or once every two weeks. I mean, that speaks to the story and then kind of it becomes believable. And yeah. so anyone looking at it, they can kind of say, oh, okay, cool. That makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah. So very cool. And community service, was that a, uh, what is the feeling? Of that, I get mixed results. <laughs> so, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure you do. We are, have colleagues with a lot of mixed experiences. For mm. me, it was one of the best years of my life. I was placed in a community at the north coast in Zululand, okay. in Seleni Hospital. Yeah. Um, it's a small hospital, but we had a, a good therapy team with a good leader who had been at the hospital for about 15 years. So I think that made a huge difference to have like that anchor mm. in our therapy department. And it was it was awesome. It was a rural uh, setting. So we did lots of home visits, um, home-based care. Um, yeah, the population that we were serving was incredible. And yeah, it was just, a, it was a really good learning experience. Mm. I think when community service came out first, you know, there was, there was so many like negative connotations with it, but to a large degree with all of the episodes, you know, it's been largely positive. You know, I mm. think the negatives has, have always been things like, you know, um, we wished we could do more and things like that. But I think that sense of camaraderie around, you know, other professional, you know, practitioners also doing community service, you know, having more money than you probably did at university for most people yeah you know it was very cool um and also the the change you know change in scenery like although I, I don't know how it would have been in the rural setting in terms of places to stay and stuff like that um but yeah yeah, yeah it was it was really really good and like I think it was it was such a good thing to expose us to the the healthcare system that is 
in the community the rural communities in our country you know like you often don't get that opportunity um to see like what a large population of our community or our, of our country what what um like health looks like to them and mm. um, so it was I like I really think that community service is like a really good thing and mm. um, even if it's just for a year like it's it changed my thinking it changed my desire to improve the healthcare system you know like it it made me want to to be a better therapist to do more to understand that I can't do it on my own like it, it just had so many good effects on my thinking and my my like desire to serve our country mm. so it's, it's a good I think it's a good thing but I know I do know that people don't have good experiences and I, I also understand that like yeah yeah I get it I mean uh, but you know when you when I hear you speaking and I heard like many practitioners I always think it's you know, like they always say, like, you, you want to travel because it gives you this life experience. I almost see that community service and maybe even like, you know, like the whole army work, it almost like builds up this this experience that you have, you know, around. And then, I mean, you don't have to stay there forever, but, you know, mm. like at least you have that experience and no one ever could take that away. So it's, um, yeah. I think that's really cool. You know, the fact that you had that experience. Yeah. And you know, and you knew there was a, you know, it was a finite term. It's not like you were there forever. You know, you were there for a year, and then you know you could do whatever you wanted after that. But that's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And after Comserve, did you go straight into private practice, or did you work at another um, institution? Yeah, so so I actually I wanted to stay on okay. <laughs> in, in Imsalini. That was like the dream. Um, there was a few of us um, therapists and doctors there, and we loved the community. We loved the hospital, and um, we wanted to stay on, but the posts had been frozen or they weren't posts. It's quite a common okay. issue in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't want to go into private. Private was actually what like mostly what I did not want to go into um, uh, yeah I just didn't like the idea of it um, I wanted to work in government so when there weren't any posts me and two of my very good friends and OT colleagues decided that we wanted to go and volunteer in Madagascar um, so we actually went there <laughs> and worked for an NGO called Growing the Nations uh, with Anri Louise. She's an OT from South Africa and she set up this organization in Madagascar and it has a variety of different legs, but basically the goal is to make OT a sustainable service in Madagascar. So we worked with her, under her, um, was meant to be for three months, ended up being seven. <laughs> um, and that was also, I mean, yeah, massively valuable experience in my OT journey um yeah so then only after then I came back and locumed a bit at Interbeni locumed a bit at Hillcrest rehab unit um and then only after then I went into private okay that's amazing and before that did you go to Madagascar seems like quite a risky thing <laughs> yeah quite a random day hey? yeah. but um we had heard about this program or this NGO, like through friends who had gone. Um, and then we got in contact with Anri and just back and forth emailing, understanding if there was a need for us to be there, if we could be helpful. Um, 
And then, yeah, we hadn't been there before. Um, we just decided to go. Hmm. Okay, cool. No, I mean, I, I love the story. It's, um, <laughs> it's a, <laughs> it says a lot about your personality and the fact that you open to those type of challenges, which is amazing. Because <laughs> not many people would do that. Um, yeah. Um, I think we had a psychologist and she said she went to um, Syria. I mean, like there's another oh, wow. yeah volunteer program and i thought that was like quite you know quite challenge uh, quite risky as well but you know she loved the experience and i think the mm -hmm. one thing i don't know if you agree but that helps you grow you know we were speaking about traveling but i mean you you can't you know you can't be in those type of experiences and not grow i think uh, yeah. is that what you found 100 percent. yeah i think it was my probably one of my biggest growth years was mm. that it was like completely out of our comfort zone we were we ended up supervising students in french <laughs> i can't speak french yeah. <laughs> and it was just like it was it was incredible mm. yeah it was, it was really really good mm. actually um many years ago i came across like uh but they were i wouldn't say immigrants yeah maybe immigrants but like expats from uh, madagascar and yeah they were speaking french i didn't kind of put that together but i, I should you should think like that because like Madagascar, you know, Mauritius, Reunion, you know, all like French kind of, you know, colonies, yeah. or countries or influence. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so close to home. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Very interesting place. And uh, private practice, was that quite an easy transition with your locum experience? I mean, did you pick up any experience from, you know, doing the locum stuff that helped you with private practice? Oh, so the the when I was locuming, it was more like an adult rehab, um. But I had I had definitely felt like I I wanted to be in a space or in a practice with children. Like I, in Madagascar, I worked with a a lot of children with cerebral palsy, and I knew then that that was my passion area. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I did the locum work because after volunteering for. <laughs> seven months then I needed a little bit of money yes. so um so that's why I did the locum work I was just willing to to work wherever um, and then kept on looking out for job opportunities and then uh, on Instagram saw a job advert for a practice called Grow Occupational Therapy with Monique Davies and in her advert advert she said looking for a nice person <laughs> then I uh, I, look at, I looked at her page and saw, like, just read a bit more, and she had mentioned someone who enjoys working with cerebral palsy. Um, and I thought, okay, this, you know, this must be it. <laughs> so I contacted her and, um, yeah, I set up an interview and got the job to start working with her. Um, so it was her private practice. I was seeing kitties. Um, at that point, only two kitties with cerebral palsy. Um but yeah, her main caseload was more typically developing children um, with a variety of issues and not so much a cerebral palsy caseload. Um, but yeah, so I worked with her for two years um, before deciding then to start my own private practice. Okay. I think that's good experience as well. And, you know, like through the, 
you know, through the episodes, what, I, what I'm hoping to do is almost like pull out these threads, you know, so for anyone, you know, firstly wanting to become an OT, you know, what would those threads be? And then yeah. like going into private practice, you know, what would those threads be? And I think the, the thing that kind of comes out very strong is that most therapists don't go straight into private practice. There are a few exceptions, but almost no one does yeah. that. They always go and work, like you said now, you know, work with Monique for two years, kind of, you know, kind of saw the lay of the land. You know, and it might not not have been perfect as in you knew everything, but at least you got a holistic view of, you know, things happening in a private practice, which I think is really cool. It's a very smart way of doing it, you know, very, uh, yeah. like, uh, not not very risky, you know, like it's it's very conservative approach, which I like. Yeah. I think it's important um, because I think that, like I've come to the, uh, you, you finish varsity and you think that you know a lot. <laughs> You go to conserve and you also still think that you know a lot. And like now when I look back, I'm like, oh my goodness, like I had so much to still learn. Mm. You know, like I think it's um it would be unwise just to sort of start your own practice straight out of ComServe. Um, you know, thinking like you have this wealth of knowledge. You do, but there's so much more to learn. And I think it's like it's really important to to work under somebody or having a mentor being part of something bigger and um, before you step out on your own hmm. yeah I, it's probably a philosophical discussion but you know what amazes me about human beings is uh, you know myself very included is uh, is right now this moment you think you're making the best decision ever and when you look at it in retrospect, you know, like a few years, you know, later, and you're like, how did you even make that decision? You know, and it's such a, <laughs> it speaks to what you just said now, you know, you think you have the experience, but actually you don't. And it's always yeah. in retrospect, you know, you realize, oh, actually, maybe I should have not done that. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, so when it's Monique, that, um, that mentor or guide for you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. She was, she was an incredible boss. And she's, she just has like the most incredible ideas and creativity and dreams. So it was really cool to work under her and to be led by her. And she, you know, she always said like, yeah, I'm, I'm not working for her. I'm working with her. Mm. She treats everybody that she works with as a colleague and learns mm. from them. So, you know, so it was really cool to learn from her. Mm. Um, yeah. That's very cool. So that's the other thread is um, we normally find like when you're going to private practice, there's this guide or mentor or, you know, in business terms, they always call them coaches, but like in with healthcare practitioners I always find almost everyone mentions someone or maybe more than one person, you know, that helped them with this and said, um, and normally it's not, you mentioned Instagram, normally it's not Facebook or Instagram. It's a, it's actual person, you know, that helped them through this challenge or sometimes just talking through it as well. You know, like yeah. office space, you know, like or therapy space, you know, where would you get therapy space? You know, why is this not ideal? And why is that, you know, like probably a better option? You know, so you do need mm. that person that will help you with that. So I think if you're looking at private practice, you know, there is that you should be looking out for that person wherever they yeah. are. Is that definitely. how you found it as well? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, Mo, um, who is Monique, we call okay. her Mo. Sure. Um, yeah, she was definitely that person for me. Um, and then there was a few other people. Like I had people that were so willing to help. One of my um, 
good friend, her name is Laurie Hill. Um, she has her own private practice in Durban as well. And um, normally, like, I think people have this thing that it's like a competition, you know, like you've mm. got to guard your space and guard your area and who you're seeing. Um, and I think that that does exist um, between some therapists and there is like that a bit of like awkwardness. Um, but I was just like blown away by like how some people were so willing to share their knowledge and share ideas and help me. And Lori was one of those. And she said, okay, let's go for coffee. This is my experience. This is what I've learned in starting my own private practice. Have you thought about this, this, and this, you know, have you got all of those things lined up? And it was, it was just so helpful because I mean, we could essentially have been like in competition with mm. each other. Um, mm. And she was just so willing to help me. Um, which I thought was so cool. And I think like Shane, um, that who I mentioned in the other episode about when we spoke about Maze, mm. she's a physio in Cape Town. Um, and she also, she shared her, her consent forms, what she includes in her parent questionnaire. Like all of those things were so helpful um, mm. for me to starting, like starting to work up like my, my foundation, my forms that I needed for my parents, things that you don't, necessarily think through clearly before starting mm. you know so it's really helpful having those different people mm. yeah that is amazing and uh, i mean like you know one of our values is like abundance so i'm a, i'm a huge believer that you don't have to you know fight or compete with other people because like you know like a therapist as well I mean, you don't need that many patients to be able to build a the private practice that you want you know mm. like the psychologists you know maybe 30 40 you know like in like um and that seems to be the normal caseload you know with most practitioners and so i think when you come across that competitive kind of behavior it's always weird um and then i think if you take that over and above that and you know i'm going to go into the maze approach quickly although we covered it in the previous episode or the other episode on the molding health show is that i think when you specialize as well that even makes it even you know like much more of a holistic view that you can help yeah. the, you know the patient probably in different ways and that's pretty cool too um, yeah yeah so the maze approach or the maze training i know you said you stumbled onto it did you find that with your private practice that it made a, a massive difference in terms of how you treated patients and how you as a therapist grew as well yes Definitely. I think that um, that when I started the private practice, I think exactly what you just spoke about, like um, that abundance, like I didn't have that in my mind. And I think that that's a common uh, fault or like a failure on our part as therapists is that you sort of have this like scarcity mindset where mm. you think, OK, like I need like as many patients as I can get. And and, you know, I need to just take whatever I can get because now you're worried about paying the bills, covering rent, covering all your expenses. Um, and you sort of go from like, yeah, being like this big dream of a private practice to being like really scared. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I did that in the beginning. So I knew that I wanted like a, my, my passion area was cerebral palsy, but I was willing to take whatever came my way. Mm. Um, and I think that that was wrong. Um, <laughs> I've learned like so much from then, but I think with maze, like my training and my journey in, in maze and the maze approach has really like changed my, I guess my confidence. Um, but my, like my, my knowledge and my passion for cerebral palsy and understanding like that is the thing that I really love. That's what I understand. And that's what I feel like I've 
I've gained experience and then I, my, my therapy has improved in that. So now in my private practice, I, I'm very happy to say, you know what, this this child will do really well with sensory integration. Like I know really brilliant therapists. Like I think that you should probably go to them. You know, I, I want my time to be dedicated to children that have brain lesions, you know, but that has only come later. Mm. Um, definitely when I started the private practice, my thinking didn't go like that. <laughs> yeah, and maybe something to be said about maybe confidence or maturity or like knowing what you want to do, you know, something like that. You know, what we were talking about just now, like that whole experience kind of thing. Mm. You know, um, but it's it's actually amazing when that happens, though, you know, because you become a lot more like, you know, much more, yeah, like self-aware or, you know, like mature, you know, about what mm. you want to choose and how you want to choose it, which is very cool. And I think if you can carve out you know, a practice based on that, knowing everything that we know about practitioners in terms of wanting to serve and wanting, you know, the whole CPD stuff as well, continuous improvement. It's it's actually a really cool space to be. And that's the reason we probably advocate, you know, like if, if you're not sure, maybe look at one of the healthcare practitioner, you know, disciplines, because it's, it's a really rewarding profession, you know, irrespective of which yeah. one you choose. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Yeah, and if you're inclined that way, obviously, <laughs> not like a you know physicist or a accountant or an attorney or something. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, that that would definitely not work. Um, so Sam, the other one I wanted to ask you, and and again, because you've been in private practice for quite some time now, and also with your experience, um, so this is our um, you know without looking at like software and all of those things, for me it's about understanding the thinking you know like more than that and i think when we started out i mean like you know obviously we came out with like you know the billing software and that seemed to be cool um but i find like with practitioners this there's more you know like and and so for for many years what we started doing was like we advocated this way that you could almost like manage a practice without because we found there's two schools of thought. One, one is like, um, you know, like most of the allied practitioners are in this school of thought, which is, you know, you just need the software and you don't have a receptionist and you don't have that. And then the other school of thought is like, you know, bigger practice, you know, normally that's your typical you know, doctors, dentists, you know, surgeons and stuff like that. And they have like a whole receptionist team. And so it's almost like two different, you know, like, like ways of working in private practice. But there had to be a middle ground and the reason I, you know, like we stumbled onto this was we saw so many clients still doing like billing at, you know, as good as software ever could be, still doing billing on a Sunday night. You know, the one client was Saturday night, 12 o'clock, we had to do an upgrade of the software. And she's like, I'm still catching up on my, on my invoicing. And we just thought that can't be the route, <laughs> you know, like it can't be that. So do you think that there's a, there's a, there's a model? where practitioners need help with the whole practice management and you know like they don't really want to do that i think that's my question is like is or, or is it that practitioners actually really like the practice management part and you know they need to find other ways of doing that better yeah so i think that's like is a good question because mm -hmm. i think that it's um it's very dependent on the person but my feeling like just from my close friends that are OTs and colleagues is that when we started doing occupational therapy, like when my friends started doing physiotherapy, like 
the reason that we started doing it is because we love our patients. We love our clients. We love to interact with them. We love that time that we spend with them. Like when we're not doing that, it's not really like filling our cup, like <laughs> in terms of spending time on our computer, you know, doing the invoicing, doing the billing, like for most therapists, the feedback that I get and the discussions that I've had is like, that is the pits, you know, like mm. we don't look forward to doing that. And mm. um, it's like, it's just time consuming. It's like what we, we do after we mm. do the thing that we love. And the thing that we love is, is intervention with our patients, you know? So I think that there is definitely like this need for like, the software and I think using your software has been such a help for me because it's it's so time efficient it's so easy to use and it's like it's it saved me a lot of time and energy and frustration because before I was using it my husband had set up like an excel spreadsheet okay. with all these formulas which mm. I've ruined because I inputted into where the formula goes without yeah. saving. I don't know what I did, but it just like messed up the whole thing. Then I'd have to spend more time on it. So I have found the billing software extremely useful. Mm. And I think that there's definitely, you know, space for it. And it's really, really important. I think there is a few therapists who I've spoken to who love admin. Mm, okay. They love doing the admin yeah. for the business. They have like a business mindset, how to grow the business, how to grow the practice. But I think the majority of of OTs and physios that I know, we mm. want we want to interact with our kiddies. We we don't often have this massive plan of of being the admin lady for a team of therapists. We mm. we want to be that therapist. So software that is time efficient and allows you to spend as little time and energy in understanding it and using it as possible is like a brilliant thing. Mm. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I think that's how uh, I mean, like what, you know, the more we started looking at it, the more we started chatting to clients. Yeah, like you said, now, like, it's not the thing that they want to do, you know, like, on, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, it's not like they're going to go onto YouTube and search, you know, what, what's the best way? What's another way I can manage my practice management? <laughs> like, and, and that's not something I, I just find, you know, if, if anything, it is, how does the the software become better and better. So I don't even have to do that, you know, while still keeping yeah. the accountability and all of that stuff. But if you could just, you know, like chuck a request in and just get a response back and it's done. I think that's where the, you know, that's where practitioners want to be. And that's the reason I keep on asking the question is for me, in my mind, that's, I think how, you know, practitioners look at it uh, because yeah. I can't see them, you know, looking at articles on, this, on a weekend or the evenings, you know, and how do I be the best, practice manager like that yeah is that true yeah a hundred percent okay i think like i think for majority majority okay. of uh, mm. therapists like i think maybe my my colleague and friend mo would argue not argue but she loves admin so she mm. would be the one person who would who who probably would read an article on how to <laughs> mm. improve like business management and uh, practice management but i think for the majority of us like i definitely I'm not really interested in hmm. yeah, researching and spending all of my energy onto the, on that. Hmm. Yeah, because we, we kind of like, you know, when we drew the circles on the board, we said, you know, like practitioners, you know, CPD, obviously the continuous, you know, uh, you know, education part, that's a big thing. Therapy part, big thing as well. You know, the yeah. whole referrals thing, because there's, there's a science, if not, you know, there's a certain amount of effort you have to do to be able to get referrals and stuff like that. 
And then there's yeah. the whole practice management, you know, like, and, and that part, you know, it's not the stuff that they want to do. And uh, yeah. thanks for collaborating that. I mean, it's quite yeah. important. You know, like I think for anyone like also looking at this, you know, wanting to go into private practice, just note that there are these things. And, you know, so from from the commonalities, it seems like practice management, although you need to do it, you know, you you want to try to find the best way you can do that. And then yeah. kind of like, you know, just go with it, you know, just, yeah. just those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have to start wrapping up because we're running out of time. But is there anything around being an OT, uh, Sam, or going into private practice that you thought I should have asked you that I didn't? Yeah, I just, what I would love to say to people like that are going into private practice is like it's really important to speak to other people that are that are in it because there's a lot of things that I think as um, therapists that we don't think about, you know, like, like the software, like, do you have a private practice number? You know, are your insurances in place? Like there's so many, the legal side of it, the tax side of it, um, the, the private practice has got so many different components um, to it that I think are really important. And I think for me, like, there's a group called the Private Practice Growth Club, which is mm-hmm. started by a lady. I'm sure you've heard of that. Yeah, Kathleen Abrahams. Yeah. yeah. And she she is incredible. And I've never mm. done like a one-on-one course with her, but she has like private practice checklists. Mm. She has she shares her knowledge so generously. Mm. Um, and I think like reading through that that sort of stuff and asking for help from those sort of people. Of, is really important and can save you like a lot of time mm. and effort um, mm. and energy. Like when you're starting out to have those systems in place, because the, the legal side of it is, is important. Understanding coding, understanding billing, invoicing, like it's important stuff All the codes, like the software makes that a lot easier, mm. but it's, it's important for us to understand that stuff. Um, so you almost put your therapy on hold <laughs> <laughs> you're like actual intervention and mm. understand the skeleton of how your practice runs before then you can focus on your the intervention that you get it that you're giving yeah I think it's important. yeah that's like an extreme that's an amazing resource and i think if anything it's just like you know other people asking the same thing and you know and mm. and seeing the commonalities and there's something about that whole community you know you mentioned the maze um you know like group that you guys have like internationally as well and there's something about that and not that all therapists are going to go there every single day to look at what's the latest you know but I think when you do need that that help and you want to dip in and you say you know I need help with my contracts right now and at least you know where to go and I think that's pretty cool too Um, yeah definitely yeah so thanks very much Uh, thanks for your time thanks for doing this thanks for all of the insight we really love to have you on on the show it's a pleasure, Oliver. Thank you so much. You guys are doing awesome things and making knowledge accessible to lots of people. So thank you so much for the interview. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode. <laughs>